All right. Sorry about that, everybody. Welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show. And uh, what's, just wanted to say, uh, my name is Jason Gallagher, and we are going through a little bit of technical difficulties. I am trying to broadcast remotely um, here from Branch of Hope in Torrance, California. Um, I'm here again with my good friend Tony Yu, evangelist and apologist extraordinaire. So I just wanted to say thank you, Tony, for being here, and um, always good to have you on. As mentioned, um, I'm at Branch of Hope, and a couple logistical things. I'm one of the deacons here at Branch of Hope, and we, as a church, have been connected to the ADC radio ministry for at least 15 years or so, and we continue to be a ministry partner and supporter of this radio ministry. Um, As a church, we have been meeting online for the past few weeks or so as we are kind of dealing with this global pandemic, this COVID-19 situation, and we are trying to keep people healthy and out of harm's way. So we've been streaming uh, remotely, live streams, and you could catch us um, online for our worship service at 10 a.m. You can catch us on Facebook at Branch of Hope, or you can stream from our website at branchofhope.org. Uh, at Apologetics.com, our motto is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe, and we want you to know that this is not about any particular personality. Uh, we have four different hosts that rotate through here on a monthly basis, and our show is mostly about you, the listeners. We've been on the air for about 20 years, and we want you to join the conversation. So before I forget, I want to throw out the number for you to call into the show tonight, and it is 1-888-995-KKLA. That's 1-888-995-5552. And we would love to hear from you tonight, and we are going to be challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. Um, And our topic tonight is related to the question of scientific foreknowledge, and infectious disease. So in particular, I want want to get you thinking about the question, how does the revelation of infectious disease in the Bible relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that is part of a question that Tony and I hope to bring much clarity to um, over the next hour. And we're obviously going through a crazy global pandemic and a whole lot of associated changes and disruptions to our lives um, have been coming at us over the past few months. And so we wanted to give you guys some exciting insights tonight that show you how awesome and gracious and loving the triune God of Scripture is and how he actually has been to the entire world. So to help us get introduced to this idea of scientific foreknowledge, I'm going to throw it over to Tony. And so, Tony, could you tell us a little bit about scientific foreknowledge, how it fits into apologetics, and what it can tell us in a general sense about the Bible and Christianity? Scientific foreknowledge, as it sounds, is the Bible being aware of science at a time that men had no idea. For instance, um, the Bible knew that the Earth was round. The Bible knew that the uh, universe was expanding. So these are little truths revealed in the Bible that show us that the Bible is of divine origin and not human origin. Right on. So we could use these things in conversations with um, skeptics or unbelievers or even other Christians as we're trying to build them up in the faith or maybe even show people reasons why they should be believing in Scripture. Absolutely, we're commanded to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have in our hearts. Right. And so we we wanted to kind of start off this show by introducing it through a story, kind of a narrative. Um, A a historical account of a a doctor, which um, Tony can tell us a little bit more about. We have some details. But his name was Ignaz Femolize. And he was known as a number of things. One of them was the persecuted medical pioneer. 
um, and the savior of mothers, you know, for some of the things that he did as a doctor. And so there's this idea, this story um, related to what's called labor fever. And maybe, Tony, you could introduce some of our audience tonight to kind of the story behind this guy. And we're going to use it as a backdrop to talk about infectious disease and what the scriptures have to tell us about it and why it's an important um, segue to even the gospel. Yes, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis was born in 1818 in Budapest, Hungary. He became a doctor in 1844, and in 1846 he became an assistant at the Vienna General Hospital. And there was a high incidence of labor fever, which caused a high death rate. At the Vienna Obstetric uh, Clinic, the mortality rate was above 10%. Um, the clinic was divided into two sections. One was run by doctors, and you had to pay to be treated by them. Their mortality rate for pregnant women was around 18%. The other part of the clinic was run by midwives, and that was free. And the mortality rate was 2%. Sometimes the mortality rate went up to 30% in the doctor's clinic. So uh, Semmelweis was wondering, why is there this disparity between the two clinics? And he really wanted to solve the problem because women were dying left and right. And uh, as he was looking for a solution, he never came up with it for a while. He went on sabbatical. He met up with a friend of his, Dr. Jacob Kolechka. During an autopsy, Kolechka was stabbed by his assistant in the hand, went through the glove, and he was infected. He didn't know at the time. And he died of a disease that looked exactly like labor fever, which only affected women. And this gave the insight to Semmelweis that perhaps this disease was caused by something that is on the patient that can be transferred from patient to patient or patient to doctor. And it was through this insight that he decided to start asking other doctors who are treating women to wash their hands before they treated the women and after they did autopsies. The uh, mortality rate went from as high as 30 all the way down to 2%, sometimes 1%. And there were two months in 1848 where there were zero um, fevers and zero deaths. So he really figured out the problem. But when he tried to tell the world about the solution, he was rejected. Nobody believed him. And that is the basic story of Semmelweis. Okay, so the idea here is he discovered something that these doctors were doing um, that was leading to the women dying at a rapid rate or a high mortality rate that were giving birth. Um, so what did he discover that these doctors were doing um, that they shouldn't have been doing? He had suspected that it was some sort of pathogen that you couldn't see that was causing the disease. This was before, the, before we understood the um, uh, microscopic organisms, organisms that were causing disease. Okay. And you, I don't know if you mentioned this part or not about the midwives. Um, so there was a difference in the way midwives treated uh, women going through labor and the way doctors the, you know, and this is interesting because midwives aren't necessarily looked to as like the, the advanced technology people of their days. The hospitals would be the ones who are known as the advanced technology. Um, but the midwives were not having high death rates, but the advanced technology people were. Um, so it's kind of interesting that sometimes just because you are the most advanced um, in terms of the uh, society or the culture that you're in, you know, they think you're the experts. Um, it doesn't always mean that you're doing things in the best in the best manner possible. Um, even in the Old Testament times, I'm thinking of midwives was a common thing you saw throughout Israel, right? When people were giving birth and, um, you know, having children, there was always midwives that came in to help them through this process. Well, the, the difference between the doctors and the midwives was 
the midwives didn't perform autopsies. Right. And they didn't treat other patients who had infectious diseases. So their benefit was they were not being contaminated, infected with other diseases. But the doctors were. And the way the doctors um, finished their autopsy was they would maybe at most wash their hands in a bowl of water that other doctors washed their hands right. in. Bloody, bloody there was water. no soap. There was nothing to, to disinfect their hands. So they were their hands looked a little cleaner. That they were still infected. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so today we, we think about that. And, you know, we think what doctor in his right mind would touch a dead person, right, and then perform examinations on living patients. Right. Um, without first employing some sort of uh, hygienic practice, right, intended to kill germs, right, because we now understand a lot about germs and the spreading of disease. Um, but to the Europeans in the mid 19th century, which is when this doctor was around, germs were virtually a foreign concept. Um, they'd never seen a germ, much less been able to predict the destructive potential of germs. Um, and so once he ordered everyone in his ward to start washing his or her hands, and um, before, before and after every examination, the death rate went from about 18 or you know, sometimes as high as 30% down to about 1% or 2%. Um, so he discovered something amazing, and we're going to be kind of touching on what he what he discovered and how what he discovered was actually written in the Bible 3,500 years prior. Right. Something very simple, and it's something even in the midst of this coronavirus. When we look at the top medical institutions today, there are certain things that they're telling everybody to do, and the very interesting thing about what they're telling people to do is it's no different than what the scriptures told us to do about 3,500 years ago. Right. And so we want to encourage people with these truths as we dig into this, um, these Bible passages to understand the amazing knowledge, the amazing foresight um, that, that is in the scriptures and also how it shows that God truly does care for humanity. He cares for people, um, saved or unsaved, you know, Christian or non-Christian, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? And, you know, we see that care uh, throughout the scriptures. And so it would encourage us to um, to read the scriptures, to trust the scriptures, and to follow the scriptures. And so what is, you know, one of the main things we saw here is this washing of hands and this clean water. Um, so let's go, let's Let's jump over to the Old Testament um, in the book of Numbers and start to unpack a little bit about this uh, passage and how it relates to infectious disease and um, spreading. Yeah, I'm going to read out of Numbers chapter 19, verses 2 through 6. This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet, and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. So this is um, God's instruction to take a heifer, which is a cow, to burn it in a fire, and add to that fire wood, hyssop, and scarlet. And this is going to be used for cleansing. And we're going to talk a little more about this in in a minute. All right, so... Do you want to talk some, about some of the symbolism here first? Or do you want to sure. The scientific kind of yeah. insight that this is pointing to. Everything in the Old Testament dealing with animal sacrifices points to Jesus. And um, the red heifer mentioned in this passage clearly is a symbol of Jesus. This red heifer has to be without blemish and no defect, which is a symbol of Jesus' sinless perfection. The fact that this... Uh, heifer had to be taken outside the camp 
points to the fact that when Jesus was crucified, he was taken outside of Jerusalem. This heifer was slaughtered, which points to the crucifixion. Wood was thrown into the fire, which is pointing to the cross. Hyssop was thrown into the fire. Hyssop is the mean by which blood was transferred onto the door during the Passover, first Passover. It was also given to Jesus while he was on the cross. Hyssop also has um, cleansing properties because it contains thymol. Scarlet is a picture of the blood of Christ. So these are some of the elements that are in this command that has symbolism pointing to Jesus. Right. So, so you know, a little bit more of that symbolism. You know, we're, we're looking at diseases, um, people dying, right? Um, and sin is a disease. Right. It's a real disease. It's the real disease that we all need to be, um, you know, really looking for the cure for. And we've been given the cure. And so, you know, one of the most important things we want to highlight as we kind of look at these sort of things is the gospel, right? How people can be made right with a holy God, right? So just as people um, have contracted these diseases, we've all contracted, you know, the disease of sin, right? Um, in the beginning, Adam sinned, sin came into the, this world, and so all of us are subject to that fall and um, that depravity. And without some sort of cleansing, some sort of healing, something to uh, wash away our disease, which is our sin, we are going to be left to suffer those consequences of our disease um, on our own. And you see here just a, a beautiful picture, as Tony was um, you know, illustrating for us, the sacrifice that was slaughtered outside the camp um, and crucified. And, you know, the amazing thing about all of this is it actually, through this whole process, this heifer being burned, the ashes, um, the scarlet, the hyssop, all of these things, even, you know, you think about the fats that are in the animal as it burns, you know, um, if you guys have ever cooked anything on a grill, you know that all the fat just kind of drains to the bottom and you usually try to collect it in some sort of a, a can or something. But all of these things come together in, you know, verse 10 and 11 there, and it speaks of this water of purification, right? And it's this water of purification that makes a huge difference, that made a huge difference for this doctor in the 1800s, started saving the lives of you know, countless women. So let's talk a little bit about this water of purification, what it is, and how these elements play a role in, um, you know, healing people and preventing disease. True thing. When you think of a barbecue, which a sacrifice is similar to, the primary thing is the animal that's been sacrificed. The animal is over a flame. So, again, think of a barbecue. And with a barbecue, you, you hear this popping sound all the time. And that's, that happens because the fat is dripping off the animal, falling into the flame, being burned. At the very bottom of this is ash. You have ash mixed with fat coming off the animal. If you know anything about soap making or maybe some basic chemistry, when you add ash to water, you get lye, L-Y-E, which is a base, a corrosive substance. When you add lye with fat, you get soap. So what, so what we get in, in this command here is actually a formula for soap, but not just any soap. This has hyssop, which contains thymol, which is an antibacterial agent. So not only do we have soap, we have antibacterial soap. Right. The scarlet that is commanded to be thrown into the flame is most likely scarlet wool. When you add wool to this mixture, it becomes an abrasive. So if you put this substance on your skin, it becomes a soap-like substance that can kill bacteria and viruses that causes you to rub. And this is an amazing um, recipe that God has given us in his word. Right. And God didn't spell it out. He didn't say, okay, I want you guys to make soap, right? I'm going to give you the formula for soap and I want you guys to use it as you shower and bathe and all those sorts of things. He, it just, it just, 
naturally as a byproduct fell out of this sacrificial picture, right? This animal being burned and sacrificed amazingly comes together. And when you do that, it creates something that brings healing to people. Just like the cross of Christ, right? The sacrifice of Christ. On one hand, it looks gruesome and bloody. But on the other hand, it brings healing and life to people, you know, to cleanse them of their disease. Let's complete the circle and show them how this is used. So I'm going to read out of Numbers 19, verses 16 to uh, 19. So Numbers 19, 16 to 19. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent and all the vessels and on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched the bone, the slain, the dead, or the grave. The clean persons shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he that is the unclean person shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water. And at evening he shall be clean. So let's break down what this is talking about. This ash and fat mixture is going to be added to water to create a a mixture that will be sprinkled over anything that's been unclean, defiled by a dead body. So we'll talk a little more about how that works after the break. Yeah, so we are coming up on our first break here, the end of our first segment. And we do have, or we we have a caller on the line, which uh, we're going to be taking their question after the break. And if you guys want to call, please do. It's 888-995-5552. And we will just be back right after these short messages. Thanks. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has ideas about God. Unfortunately, many people hold false ideas about him. And these ideas have consequences. Some false ideas have led people to worship a God of their own making, while others have led people to reject God altogether. This year, we've devoted an entire conference to answering the most common false ideas about God. Is God anti-gay? Is God good? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are just a few of the topics we'll be addressing. The only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. We're at war. It's not a war of bombs and bayonets. It's not a war against flesh and blood. In fact, it's not a physical war at all. It's a spiritual war. That's why Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's primary scheme is deception. He wants us to believe false ideas about God. And the only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. Simply put, we combat deception with truth. It's unfathomable to imagine sending young men and women off to fight a physical war without proper training. Yet, When it comes to spiritual warfare, we do this all the time. The vast majority of our students are simply not prepared for the spiritual battle that awaits them. At this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences, we're training students to counter the lies of the enemy. Lies like God does not exist, God is anti-gay, Muslims and Christians worship the same God are just a few of the false ideas we'll be addressing. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. 
on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. All righty, welcome back to the second half of the Apologetics.com radio show. Again, my name is Jason Gallagher. I'm in studio tonight with Mr. Tony Yu. Tony, how you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Well, I did want to get to a phone call we had. We had someone call in with a question for us. We can't take the live call right now. Um, but he did call, and the question was about God creating male and female. It's not totally related to our topic tonight, um, but we always want to take calls about the Bible, about the scriptures, about anything related to ethics or morality, and this one is about uh, homosexuality. So in the beginning, it tells them that God made male and female, and does God approve of homosexuality? So I will throw that question over to Tony. I know you have a particular heart for the homosexual community. I know you've spent uh, countless hours uh, trying to love on them and talk to them and you know share the good news of the gospel with them. Um, so, Tony, what do you think? Is um, is the Bible male and female in the beginning talking about um, homosexuality, and does God approve of that? Yeah, it's it's a really common question that comes up a lot these days. Um, there's this thinking that somehow that changed in the New Testament, uh, that God now no longer condemns homosexuality. But uh, even Jesus referred to Genesis when he, when he talked about marriage, how God created the male and female, and that marriage is only for the union for, of one man and one woman. And we see even in the New Testament in the epistles, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, it condemns homosexuality. But it also condemns uh, adultery. Uh, it condemns all sorts of sin, and uh, it doesn't place any special emphasis on homosexuality. It's a sin like anything else that's a sin. And we must repent of that before we have any assurance of salvation. So if you're struggling with homosexuality, my heart goes out to you. And if you want prayer for that, we will pray for you. If you can just ask us to, maybe we'll do it anyway. Um, but you're not in a special category of sinners. You're like me, you're like Jason, you're like anybody else who struggles with all kinds of sins. Our sins are just different than yours. I can assure you that God loves you. He wants you to repent if that's what you're struggling with. Um, and he has the power to help you to overcome the sin. And it starts by repenting and trusting in Jesus. When you're born again through faith, God grants you the power to battle the sin, whatever sin you're, you're dealing with. So we love you here. Uh, God loves you. And you do not have to give in to the sin. Yeah, I would just echo what Tony said. I would also encourage you to go to the Apologetics.com website and look at some of our past radio shows. In particular, we had a special guest on uh, last summer in July. He came out with a new book called A Change of Affection. And it was written by Beckett Cook, you know, uh, a friend of Tony's and a friend of mine. And it was, you know, uh, a gay man's, you know, journey from homosexuality to uh, Christianity. And, you know, one of the amazing things that Beckett talks about is uh, the change of identity he had, you know, and how his identity was kind of wrapped up in his sexuality. And and now when he, when he came to Christ, his identity is wrapped up in Christ. And all of those things that he struggled with, although he didn't, they didn't go away overnight. Um, 
his desire and love for Christ kind of trumped all of that. You know, he was so in love with Jesus that he didn't want to sin against him. So he didn't act out on desires that he knew were against God and against scripture. And so Beckett is still, he's, you know, he's constantly prior to the quarantine thing, he was going on talk shows and radio shows and interviews all over the country sharing his story. And um, he just has obviously coming from that lifestyle, just a great um, empathy for people who are going through that. Um, but also just, he's very bold, but gracious and speaks the truth in love. And so I encourage you to encourage you to look him up, Beckett Cook. Um, go to our radio shows on apologetics.com um, and check out his book, A Change of Affection. Uh, but getting back to our topic at hand, thanks for that question. We appreciate it. Um, you can always call us at 888-995-KKLA if you have any other questions. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. But what we're talking about tonight, because we're living through this pandemic, is infectious disease and what the Bible has to say about it. In particular, this idea of scientific foreknowledge, which are basically things in the Bible that current knowledge, current technology had no means of being aware of at the time, but the scripture clearly put things in the practice um, that we might have discovered you know, thousands of years later. And the particular example we used was a medical doctor in the mid-1800s who discovered that many people were dying after um, examining dead bodies and then going and examining live patients. They were passing diseases to these live patients, and uh, the mortality rates were up in the 20% range. Once this doctor actually implemented simple hygienic procedures that we know all about today, washing their hands and cleaning them with you know, clean towels and things, uh, the death rate dropped. And we saw in numbers, after nine, that... In the middle of the sacrificial ordinance that God gave them, the priest, of burning a heifer with scarlet and hyssop and uh, water, that what this really is, it's a recipe for antibacterial soap. And it's something that if people had used that you know, from 3,500 years ago to today, countless lives could have been saved by preventing the spread of disease and infection. Um, at first glance, you know, you might get some skeptics, since this is an apologetic radio show, we're used to dealing with skeptics on a whole range of issues, but in this particular issue, you might get skeptics who are um, looking at this whole idea of hyssop and scarlet and sprinkling and the heifer and look at it as kind of some superstitious potion like it's, you know, quote-unquote magic potion that um, is supposed to ward off evil spirits or something like that. You know, a lot of skeptics try to <clears throat> try to ridicule and create a caricature sometimes um, to try and dismiss things in Scripture. But as Tony was kind of discussing, what we see here is a, a revelation of God's brilliance in that you have a recipe for antibacterial soap, um, you know, given through the hand of Moses. Um, you know, some of these things like hiccup you'll find in um, scope and mouthwash, you know, those sorts of things because they have antibacterial properties. Um, hiccup is a healing oil, you know. If you if you study oils at all, you'll know that hiccup um, has an antiseptic quality to it as well as an antiviral quality to it, um, a mold that produces penicillin, which is a, um, an antibiotic, actually grows on hiccup leaves. And so these are the things God gave us way, way, way before science ever discovered any of these things. Um, so it's a beautiful thing to see um, when Scripture um, gives that to humanity, a means to care for and love our neighbors. And, um, and to not spread diseases to them. Uh, Tony, any other any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that uh, in this passage, 
a clean person is commanded to sprinkle this mixture on anybody who is deemed defiled because they touched a dead person. And then after that, at the end of this passage, you see that this dead, this defiled person, having been sprinkled, has to go and wash his clothes and bathe in water, perhaps a stream. So what you're seeing here is just like how we use maybe liquid soap today. You would put the soap on yourself, and then you would add water, so you could uh, create a lather and ultimately clean your skin. And when you keep going, you ultimately rinse off the soap. And when this command is obeyed, this person ends up being clean. So uh, it's amazing how uh, this was given 3,500 years ago, and it still works today. But if you look at another thing, um, what they're commanded to do back then, 3,500 years ago, is the same thing we're doing today. They were commanded not to touch dead things. Mm -hmm. And if they did, they had to be separated from the community for seven days. That's quarantine. And they're commanded to wash with soap and water. That's exactly what we do today to to deal with coronavirus, 3,500 years later. Yeah. Speaking of medical authorities and things like that, I pulled up a just a simple little article from Hopkins Medicine, from Johns Hopkins University, one of the most well-known medical authorities in the world today. And the, the article is simply, how can I protect myself and others from the new coronavirus and COVID-19? And they basically say, avoid close contact with others. You know, practice physical distancing, stay six feet away, um, avoid people who appear sick and those sorts of things. And then the second thing they say to do is to practice good hygiene wherever you are. And what this comes down to is washing your hands with soap and water thoroughly. And um, if soap and water are not available, use hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. And if you read other articles, um, kind of with a little bit more of a scientific explanation to it. It says that soap actually works better than alcohol and other agents. You know, the um, if you look at this, uh, I think it's marketwatch.com, there was an article written by Howie Thorderson, a professor of the School of Chemistry in New South Wales, Sydney, he basically said that soap dissolves the fat membrane of the virus and it falls apart like a house of cards and dies. Um, and it works better than you know, alcohol. So it's amazing that medical science today recognizes that soap is the number one way to kind of get rid of viruses and things like that, which is exactly what God gave us. And we... We haven't gotten anything better than that in 3,500 years because that is the best. You know, God gave us the best in his word, which is what he always does. You know, God never fails to give us anything less than his best. Um, And he gave it to us in his son, right? The perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, right? The perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, God does not give us second best or third best. He always gives us um, the best. And so if you're already a Christian, I pray that this would encourage you. But if you're not a Christian, I pray that you think about these things, you know, um, that God has given us these things in his word. And he's also he's, he's given us so many other things and medical, scientific, you know, foresight that we don't have time to get into everything tonight, but, um, you know, from food, what we eat, um, you know, quarantining, social distancing, you know, what, what, like water, fowl, fish, we should and should not eat, um, reptiles, we shouldn't eat, you know, um, and the Bible talks a lot about quarantining as well, but since Tony and Apologetics radio show, you know, we talk to a lot of people on the streets, you know, Tony loves to evangelize, I love to evangelize, and we come across all sorts of different objections. So one of the objections 
that you'll hear along these lines of biblical scientific foreknowledge is, um, you know, found on a website called Rational Wiki. And I wanted to throw this out to you, Tony, so you can kind of give some of the listeners an idea of how we would uh, refute arguments that come against scientific foreknowledge in the scriptures. And one thing they say off the bat is this, like a general problem. They say, like any high school algebra student knows, one must show their work. Getting the conclusion right is less than half the battle. So in the long run, the assertion that the Bible is an almanac of scientific fact, albeit without explanation, proves the Bible's limited application as a factual guide to today's world. So um, I don't know. I've never, I've never gone around saying that the Bible is a scientific almanac. <laughs> so I think there's kind of a straw man argument being built right there. Um, but Tony, what do you think about that? This first objection, like, you must show your work. <laughs> if you're going to have a, a scientific conclusion, but you don't show your work, well, it's, it's an invalid conclusion or something. That's an attempt to force the Bible into a genre of literature that it doesn't belong in. The Bible was never intended to be a book of recipes or a book of science or a book of how to figure out this or that in the world of science. The book is a spiritual book. It occasionally deals with science, and when it does, it's always correct. And once in a while, it'll reveal scientific facts that could not have been known at the time, which is scientific foreknowledge. So the Bible, God, is not obligated to show you his work. He's God. But what he can do is show you things that could not have been known at the time to bolster your faith to give you confidence that you're dealing with a book that has divinely inspired the Word of God. So I don't think that's a, a valid objection to scientific foreknowledge in the Bible. Right. Yeah, I mean, think about, you know, just looking at creation, you know, think about um, a cow, for example. You know, a cow is this amazing machine that is able to ingest grass and turn it into milk, right? <laughs> that we could drink and could and could make our bones strong, right? And give us certain vitamins that we need, all from grass, right? This animal chews up this grass, and out comes something very yummy and valuable for humans, right? So can um, can scientists today, with all of their so-called knowledge and wisdom, can they create a machine that you can throw your lawnmowers, you know, <laughs> shaving into, and have it spit out milk. Can scientists do that? Absolutely not. No, they have no idea how to do that. But yet God has created a cow that does that day in and day out, repeatedly, predictably. Right? And he doesn't need to give us the, the blueprint on how that machine works in order for it to be an amazing revelation of God's brilliance and genius, right? Absolutely. So the same is true here. When God, when God suddenly, through his word, shows us a recipe for antibacterial soap that can help cure and prevent the spread of disease, he doesn't need to give us a you know, scientific formula you know, of the soap molecules in order for it to prove that he is brilliant and genius, you know, and that the Bible is truly written by him. Right? Absolutely. So, if you, if you read the rest of the article, there's those five criteria for actual foreknowledge. So, it wouldn't be fair if we didn't kind of go through their criteria and see if this particular example actually lived up to it. Okay? Um, because we want to, we really want to be fair to this, you know, marketplace of ideas, knowing that there's other competing ideas and worldviews out there, um, and we just don't want to state things without giving kind of a, a rigorous uh, foundation and background and explanation. Um, so in order for a statement to be biblical, scientific, foreknowledge, it must fit five criteria. So first of all, it must be correct, okay? A statement cannot be scientific foreknowledge if it's incorrect. I would agree with that. And this is very, very correct. It's yeah. still correct. 
we're still doing the, the things that was taught 3,500 years ago. Right. Check. Yeah. So good. So this is correct. We still, John Hopkins is still saying, wash your hands with antibacterial soap. That's the best thing possible you can do. So right. the Bible is still correct in that regard. Quarantine, social distancing. Right. Yeah. It's all talked about in this. All talked about. That's right. Um, so one, we meet that criteria, but it's a correct statement. So two, it must be in the Bible. Okay. Check. Obviously, a statement cannot be biblical, scientific, or knowledge if it's not found in the Bible. Right. So that's a fair, fair criteria, I would say. Um, and so we find this in Numbers 19, verses two through 19, roughly, all throughout there. Okay. So we meet criteria number two. Um, three, it must be unambiguous. Right, so it must be clear. It state it can't be ambiguous because scientific knowledge is necessarily precise, uh, they say, and because ambiguity allows modern science to be shoehorned into ancient religion when none is present. So what would you say to that? I think it's very, very specific. It gives you the list of ingredients and beyond that it tells you exactly how to use it and for what purpose. And again, it's 3,500 years ago, so I, I don't think there's any ambiguity here, ambiguity here at all. Right. And I haven't done this myself, but I guess we could probably, you know, uh, burn a heifer if we <laughs> or some ribs or some ribs or something. Um, we could add some hyssop and scarlet and whatnot, uh, pour it through ashes and uh, see what happens. To make soap, you only need ash, water, and some fat. Yeah. So you don't even need the hyssop or the scarlet. But it gives you a lot of good, important added benefits. Yes. Right. Right. So it's not ambiguous. Not at all. not unclean. Um, Fourth criteria, it must have been outside of contemporary knowledge. Okay, so this is that... It wasn't already known and just kind of copying some already known knowledge, um, which would make divine intervention unnecessary. So what would you say to that? I would say we definitely need that. I mean, just look at 200 years ago in the 1800s. They didn't know not to mess with dead bodies and then treat patients without washing their hands. Right. So I think this is clearly before the knowledge uh, that was in civilization. Agreed. Um, so yeah, if, if it was already around, then you'd think in the 1800s we would have been using it, right? Right. Um, they obviously had overlooked what was written in the scriptures. Um, right. And then criteria number five, it must have been outside of contemporary technology, okay? So, um, this one's maybe a little bit less clear, but the idea is that a statement can't be considered scientific for knowledge if it was knowable with the technology of the time. Okay. So this criteria to me doesn't quite, uh, I don't think it's the most valid criteria. Um, you know, a scientific discovery by, def- you know, by definition when discovered meets the technology of the time, right? God can say, well, you must have a heifer, you must have hyssop, you must have scarlet, and you must have wood. But people be like, you know, well, I don't know what scarlet is. You know, there's no, scarlet doesn't exist. Like, what is he saying? Like, you know what I mean? So yeah. that kind of idea I don't think is a valid, a valid critique or a I, criteria. I would say that you can, if you interpret that um, criteria a different way, you can look at the most advanced civilization of the time, Egypt, and they had nothing like this. They didn't know anything about infectious disease or soap or social distancing or quarantining. Um, so God gave the Israelites something far more advanced than even the most advanced nation of the time had. So I think we, we need it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think another way of kind of looking at that is also to say, you know, you look at some books or movies that were written, you know, Star Trek, for example, right? Star Trek had some 
devices, you know, these futuristic devices in their shows and movies when they were first made that when we first saw them, we're like, oh my goodness, that is like, imagine if we had something like that, you know, like a device that you could like see someone's photo on and talk to them over like a video screen. Like, that's amazing. Um, and now we have that, right? But was Star Trek written by God? Like, did they, you know, did they have scientific foreknowledge and therefore it must have been a divinely inspired you know, show? I wouldn't say that's scientific foreknowledge. That's just extrapolating not very far from the technology we already had in the 1970s. Right. Yeah, it's not, it was more of an, yeah, you could kind of just imagine, you know, because yeah. they had TVs around. Radios, radio, electricity. Yeah. Uh, walkie-talkies. It's kind of like a science, yeah. science fiction, you know. Well, I mean, because we could think of things today like a hoverboard or something that would be really cool. And it might be invented in like, you know, mm -hmm. 20 or 50 years or something like that. But yeah. that doesn't mean we're, you know, we're somehow divine because we're able to think of something neat. Yeah, this text implies knowledge of microorganisms causing disease, which is not even anywhere in human knowledge 3,500 years ago. So it, it, you couldn't extrapolate existing knowledge to come up with this. There's nothing to extrapolate. Right. So we are about at the end of our hour. So, Tony, is there like a 15-second wrap-up you'd want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, don't lose sight of the fact that this is primarily a spiritual book with spiritual application. Um, this isn't about learning some amazing recipe that's going to make your life a little healthier. It's about the blood of Jesus. Think about what we just learned. A heifer, an innocent animal, had to die so that you could be cleansed and so you could live. That points to Jesus, who died on the cross, purely innocent, so that we could be healed of our sin so that we can have everlasting life. Everything points to Jesus in the Bible. And this is just another example of how even books like Numbers and Leviticus all point to Jesus. Don't forget that it's about Jesus. Amen. Thank you for that. I don't think I have much to add. So um, on behalf of Apologetics.com, I'm Jason Gallagher. And thanks for listening. Tony, thanks for being here. My pleasure. And thank you, KKLA and all the all the technical engineers there in the studio tonight. We appreciate you. And uh, all the listeners out there, we will be back next Friday night at midnight. Till then, God bless.